Hi, I'm Sage and welcome to my podcast. Here I will chat with you about my adventures in romance and non-monogamy and all of existence really, starting from my strict fundamentalist Christian childhood all the way through to where I am today, practicing relationship anarchy and still trying to figure life out bit by bit. Here you can expect frank discussions about religion, about trauma, about monogamy and of course about sex. I hope you'll have fun, I hope you'll find it interesting and most of all I hope you'll join the conversation. Hello dear listeners, this is just a quick intro to say that I think this episode is a bit more spiky than my episodes usually are. As I was editing, I realized that I was swearing quite a bit and at first I tried to delete every instance where I said fucking because sometimes it just felt out of place, but then eventually I decided, you know what, this is just my authentic expression at this moment. It's a bit raw, it's a bit spiky, it's a bit up and down, and it might not be your vibe right now. So this is just a gentle heads up that, of course, take care of yourself first, and if you don't vibe with what I'm saying, that's fine by me. But if you do vibe with it, then welcome, I'm glad you're here. Hello friends, it's me, Sage, a very non-Sage Sage today. Hmm. How have you all been? I'm so grateful for the messages I've been getting on Instagram, some directly in my email and some on Facebook and some on WhatsApp to tell me you've been listening, you've been going through similar experiences, so... Yeah, I'd love to I'd love to keep that going. I'd love to hear more. So please send me messages, especially with this episode, which I'm having serious imposter syndrome about. First of all, I think I should change my intro. Because when I started this podcast, just eight episodes ago, I thought it was gonna be a podcast about relationships, mainly. And sure, about the themes that then pop up. You know, teenage love, visiting the idea of monogamy and non-monogamy, talking about relationship anarchy, talking about wounds that come up when we're relating intimately with people, etc., etc. And I mean, in the broadest sense, this podcast has been about relationships and is about relationships, but I have deviated from my original plan so completely that I don't know if that intro is still applicable. So let me know. Send me a message if you think I should redo it, if I should keep it. <sighs> because once again, today is not the episode I was planning on recording. I am deeply honored and grateful for all the people who've sent me their stories about masturbation, specifically about when they were kids, teenagers, when they were discovering their bodies, about 
how they learned about themselves and very much about the shame that they carried and often still do carry. And a lot of this resonated with me. And also all of it felt really powerful and precious. And I want to do that justice in an episode where I'm fully present, where I can share my story also with courage and vulnerability, where I can read all of these stories and just where I'm there, you know, because I'm not there right now. I sat down today for the millionth day in a row in front of my microphone with my notes about this fucking masturbation episode that has been in the works for two months now and it just didn't want to happen. Because I am in a dark place. And the only thing I seem to be able to talk about with true authenticity right now is the darkness that I'm in. So that's what this episode is going to be about. And in a sense, I think it's a call. It's a call to all of you out there, known and unknown, in South Africa and elsewhere, just a reaching out, you know, a kind of a dear listener, are you there? I am here and it is hard and I more than anything guess I want to know that I'm not alone and that it gets better I know that it gets better I've been around for 32 years and it has always gotten better but right now I am having a hard time really believing that And even as I say that, I also know it's not fully true. There are parts of me that think, oh, joy is just absolutely out of my reach. And then there are other parts of me that go, what are you talking about? We are having the most interesting, nourishing, fertile time. This darkness is amazing. It is so laden with aliveness. To summarize the external fact about my life, Um, I'm moving in less than a month and I'm not quite sure where I'm moving to yet. As I've mentioned in some of my previous episodes, I quit my job after giving myself two years to prepare and I'm not as well prepared as I thought I'd be and nothing rang true for me to do next except volunteer, travel, meet people and work with the soil, work with plants work with nature I crave the simplicity and complexity of just digging my hands into the soil and so I'm putting my things in storage I'm trying to learn all of my possessions out that I possibly can and hopefully one day when I find a place again get those things back from my friends put whatever else I can't lend into storage throw my dog in the car and set out in early January and I'm not quite sure what my first destination will be yet. I'm still ironing out the kinks and that's supposed to be quite easy. I've created a Workaway profile and Workaway, for those of you who don't know, is basically like online dating for volunteers. So People who need volunteers put up a profile, they say what they offer, what kinds of experiences you have there, what kind of work is expected of you, and I make a profile, I say who I am and what I like and what kinds of expertise I bring, and then we basically match up. So that's my plan, and I did manage to make a workaway profile, 
but I am proud of myself these days when I shower and eat. <laughs> so making arrangements just feels beyond my abilities. And being with that and allowing myself to not do very much at all and refusing to be rushed because I still do have an entire month and I have family that I can live with afterwards if needs be and I have friends that I can stay with afterwards if needs be. So I'm not going to be homeless in a month's time and really telling myself there is no rush. Be with this first is, is one of my challenges right now. So I'm supposedly packing. I'm not really, but it's, it's on the horizon. Um, I'm very sad about the newest COVID variant, Omicron. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. And just about the ensuing light it has cast on how Africa is treated by the rest of the world. By how Africa is stigmatized and just easily shut out of the rest of the world as soon as something like this happens. And to be clear, as far as I understand it, the Omicron variant didn't necessarily originate in South Africa or in Botswana. It was simply identified here for the first time. And even if it did originate here, there is no shame in a virus mutation. It's not a moral thing. It's simply a mutation. It's neither good nor bad, or it doesn't say anything about the people that carry it. They're neither good nor bad. Regardless of that, it was first identified in South Africa and disclosed in South Africa, and now the rest of the world is closing its doors to Africa. And I just think it's such a simplistic and hysterical response to a worldwide problem. And this has been bothering me for a while, and I'm not, I don't really keep up with the news about vaccines and vaccine distributions and Pfizer and all the other guys who have patented it and developed a new vaccine, etc., etc., because it just honestly just saps my energy. But I do know that we in South Africa only got access to the vaccine about six months after I saw um, people in the States and in Europe being vaccinated. So we've only had access to it recently, and I know there are still countries in Africa that are struggling to get their hands on a vaccine. And now we have a new strain, as we have before with the Delta variant, and the rest of the world goes, ooh, throws its hands in the air and closes its airports. And it's just such a fucking sad response, because this virus is a small problem in comparison to the other long-term issues that we are facing the impending and current climate crisis, we don't even know what its effect will be. We don't know what the probable collapse will look like. Most likely it will start and affect the poorest communities first, the global south. And seeing how easy it is for the global north to just wash its hands in innocence and say, whoops, sucks to be you, and close its doors is upsetting and saddening and also makes me aware of the fact that perhaps it is time for us in Africa to stop looking to the West for help, to come up with communal solutions more and more. And we are doing so. And I can feel that urge within myself to connect locally, to get to know 
people of my own country, stories of my own country, innovations of my own country, of my own continent. But I also feel like the rest of the world is missing out by so quickly dismissing Africa because Africa is so fucking powerful and so interesting and so beautiful and it's where we all came from. And I'm, I'm, I'm just sad. I'm just sad at all the separation I see all the time, everywhere. Like people shouting at each other on Instagram, people shouting at each other everywhere. And my heart just feels heavy and it longs for connection that I'm not experiencing right now. I'm also, of course, in a, in a season of saying goodbye, saying goodbye to my beautiful town, Stellenbosch, where I've lived for nine years, to my job where I worked for 10 years, but especially this town and these people and these mountains, these mountains, these cliffs, these trees, feeling part of a place and not only feeling part of a place, but having so much of my history coiled up within it. This is by far the longest I've ever lived in a single town. And I feel once again heavy with grief as I'm ready to leave it. Along with that comes a huge fear of failure and specifically a fear of being poor. <laughs> I have no idea how I'm going to get by next year. I mean, I have some plans in place and volunteering obviously doesn't cost money except for fuel. And I have some creative endeavors in the pipelines and I want to start a Patreon page and all of these things. But I am going from a steady salary to no salary whatsoever and as someone who grew up in a very poor family, as in a family that lived off the French government and had to uh, receive food packages at times and, and was always very aware that there was no financial security, willingly creating that level of financial insecurity for myself feels ridiculous. There's a significant part of my mind that is just shouting at me saying, what are you doing? <laughs> And yet, this feels right. Abandoning this town, abandoning these wonderful friends, this found family, abandoning the salary, feels right. And I thought that the fact that it feels right would be enough. I honestly did not reckon with the heaviness of grief and fear that would lodge itself in my body. My relationship with the mage is painful <laughs> and just painful and it's so beautiful, a part of me says, having this honor of being so triggered by someone's beautiful and authentic existence, being so terrified because what happens for me with the mage is that everything he does, whenever he takes some space, whenever he is quiet, um, whenever he doesn't respond to my texts, my entire body shouts at me that I'm being abandoned. And I've never had it come up as strongly as it is coming up with him. And there are many reasons why it's coming up so strongly. Whatever the case might be, my body from day to day believes that I'm going through a breakup. I feel in my body the way that I normally feel during a breakup. Except that there is no conclusion. <sighs> And as I said, there's a part of me that thinks, well, this is amazing. What an honor for us to, to be walking this road, this weird road, and feeling it out and taking space and moving closer and taking space and 
trying to honor ourselves and each other and really doing it quite beautifully, I think. And then there's another part of me that thinks, okay, but I'm going to die. Can this end? Just make it stop. Just make it stop. <laughs> um, and over and over, realizing that there are no easy choices. I can either walk away and end at least the romantic aspects of this relationship. I can do that. Perhaps it is even, in fact, happening. And that would be extremely painful. Or I can figure out a way to stay as much as feels right. And that will be extremely painful. And I'm just sick of things being extremely painful. What's also come up for me with him is rage, which is a foreign emotion for me. And I am still digesting what to do with this rage, with this primal ancient rage that is not about him at all but about my childhood and about my ancestral heritage and about the fact that I do not trust nor have I ever trusted men and that I do not trust the masculine not even the masculine within myself and that this is a huge wound and I don't know where to go with it nor do I really know many alternatives because and I'll talk about this later in the episode, but even God, as I was taught God, is a man. So coming to realize that I don't trust men, that I am deeply angry at how I've felt in my life and in my ancestry betrayed by men, means that there is something I need to fall back on while I heal this. I think that's what it comes down to is, sure, Obviously, this needs to be addressed. And obviously, this is something I want to be with, this wound around men, around masculinity. But in the meantime, I need an alternative, something else that I can hold on to, something else that I do trust. And I don't know if I trust the feminine either. Another thing that happened is my dog got very sick on Saturday. I got up in the morning and I, it was weird because I'd actually had a dream that he was dying. I dreamt that my dog was dying and then I got up to feed him and he couldn't get up. His whole hind body was limp and shaking and he couldn't hoist himself up. Now my dog, Vote, spelled W-O-U-D, means forest but it's pronounced Vote. My dog Vote, he is 11 so he's getting on, he's a Labrador. He is the most energetic 11-year-old you will ever meet. He jumps into the boot of my car. He begs me for walks. And him being temporarily paralyzed plunged me into a complete existential crisis because in about a month's time, he and I are heading off into the wild unknown and we're going to be volunteering on farms and visiting people. How do I take a paralyzed dog with me? What are my options? What do I do? How much is this going to cost? Are all my plans derailed forever? So this is what happened to my mind. And obviously just seeing him suffering was terrible. I took him to the vet. The vet didn't know what it was, prescribed some pain meds. The next day he was up again. So I've scheduled an appointment with a doggy fissure. But that is also weighing on me. Just the reminder in, in the wriggly, soft body of my dog that he's living on borrowed time, that I'm living on borrowed time, that, that he is getting older and that mortality could just derail the most well-laid plans. So there's been that. That's 
sort of roughly the background of all the things that have been happening. And correspondingly, there's been a lot of stuff happening in my body. About two weeks ago, I woke up and I'd already, the, the tension had been building, the tension had been building. And two weeks ago, I woke up and I just had these um, stabbing pains all over my torso, like a mixture between cramps and stab. I, it was very weird, like all over my stomach and my chest. And that abated slightly, but since then I haven't really had a moment of physical comfort. I am constantly nauseous, I vomit very frequently, and it's interesting because it's it's very clearly emotion-based. When I feel a strong emotion, suddenly I run and vomit. I wake up in the mornings, lie in my bed, feel sadness wash over me, and ten minutes later... I'm nauseous. It's very interesting. And I've had these symptoms before, but never quite as consistently, as unendingly, and as acutely as the past two weeks. It's been really hard to eat. It's been, my muscles are very tight and stiff and sometimes crampy. In a sense, it's been textbook anxiety, right? Like if somebody else were to tell me, my stomach is in a knot, I'm nauseous, I have shoulder cramps I tell him you're anxious and I know that I am but it also I I don't quite know how to explain this and it also feels different it also feels like this is not a bad thing necessarily and those two weeks ago when I woke up with those those stabbing pains the first thing that came up for me was a big sense of failure I was like Seriously, I've done so much work. I have been for EMDR sessions in the recent past. I've been seeing a therapist again. I have been reading the books, listening to the podcasts. And honestly, those have felt edifying. Those have felt good. I've been learning the lessons. I have been showing up for myself over and over. I've been holding myself, holding my body, cradling my body, rocking my body. Why is this happening again? Why is my body feeling like this? I have failed at not being anxious. And then on the heels of that came a stiller voice, something that said something like, no, I'm missing the point. This is what's coming up now. And the lesson, and I even, I almost don't want to call it a lesson because lesson is so linear in its thinking, you know, it's so progress-minded But the thing that's really settling for me in my being, the thing that's really been coming up for me over and over again over this past year, over these past few years, is to be with what is, to really be with it, to not wish it away, to see how fully, how much I can truly be with this. So if the thing that is, is these stabbing stomach pains, can I say yes to that? What would that mean? What would that look like? What would I do for myself if I said yes to the stomach pains? And what came up was, as soon as I said yes to the stomach pains, I was able to, instead of berating myself, to comfort myself, as you would a child who has stomach cramps. And over and over, that's been the work of the past two weeks. Every time something hurts for me to say oh, this hurts. And something hurts all the time. So I'm saying it all the time. 
every time my heart feels heavy, to say, oh, and I put my hand on my chest and I say, this feels heavy. But to say it without an ulterior motive. So not saying, oh, this feels heavy in the hope that acknowledging the heaviness will take it away. If I'm holding myself in my anxiety and hoping that that'll chase away the anxiety, then it won't. <laughs> so the challenge has been to, to be with all of this intensity, with all of this darkness, and for all of this intensity and darkness to not leave in spite of the fact that I'm being with it. And it leaving is not the point. And that's what I keep remembering. The darkness will leave when it is ready to leave. And in the meantime, can I be here? Can I be with it? And so this this darkness feels to some extent situational. I mean, if I look at the facts of my life, it makes sense that I'm feeling anxious, that I'm feeling grief, even rage. But it also feels like I called it forth. Or maybe I should rather say I unearthed it. And I did that completely accidentally and I'm still not sure what's happening because that's been the the dominating theme for me the past while is what is happening? I don't understand what is happening. I feel as if I'm being initiated into something and I have no idea what that something is. I just know that there is no backing out. It's as if I'm giving birth and at the same time being given birth to. And this, I think, and I'm not sure, and I'm in fact hesitating to really put a narrative or linear narrative to this, but I think that this has been, this is the culmination of events and of, of, of themes that have been coming up for quite a few years. I have never been able to stop praying. When I stopped identifying as a Christian, when I deconstructed my faith in my early 20s, the biggest loss for me was the loss of prayer, of not being able to talk to God anymore, because I was in constant conversation with God, always. I specifically remember long nights as a student in my final year, hammering out an assignment in the middle of the night and going outside sitting on my porch steps in the winter nights smoking a cigarette and casting my heart outwards and talking to God and then having this thought of, wait, does God even exist? Who am I talking to? This is ridiculous. And that was such a huge loss for me, not being able to pray. So very quickly I just got over it and decided I'm going to pray nonetheless to whomever or whatever's out there. And I just started replacing the word God with universe or source. And for a very long time, I pictured this source as a sort of a a star, a far off star in the night sky. That is sort of the light from which we all came and to which we will all return. And that was sort of my unformed idea and, and the sort of source that I was sending my prayers towards, my my constant conversations towards. And then a few years ago, I was volunteering at this this um, South African Korean meditation farm, <laughs> quite an unusual place that was teaching us what they call dungeon breathing. And that's a sort of a breathing meditation where you breathe into the lowest parts of your stomach 
and then breathe out and you cast your mind towards source as you do this and imagine the light of source penetrating your body and then impurities coming out. And the teacher is saying to us, imagine this kind, warm glow coming from source, emanating from source. And I was trying to picture this, this light that I've been praying towards for however long. And I realized with a shock that I don't feel as if source or as if God likes me. I feel that it disapproves of me. It's kind of cold, it's kind of disengaged, and it doesn't like me. I'm a bit of a disappointment. I should be trying harder, doing it better, working harder, growing more, putting my back into it. I'm not living up to source's expectations. And I remember with a shock realizing, wow, in spite of the fact that I have been in conversation with God for, at that point, 28 years, I don't actually think God likes me. And I immediately realized that that must be a function of how I was taught God is, of who I was taught God is. God is this male figure who in some ways resembles my dad, who thinks I'm annoying and embarrassing with my big feelings and my clumsy body. And that really brought me to a standstill and I realized I want a different God. I want a God who holds me, who cherishes me, who nourishes me, who teaches me his or her ways in a gentle way. And that this impersonal light in the sky that I've been sending my prayers towards is not going to cut it. But then I realized I had always also been praying to the earth, been reaching out my consciousness and my heart towards the earth as I drive, as I walk, as I look up at the mountains, as I look at a tree. I'm constantly talking to nature and talking to this, this, this sort of force, this sort of aliveness that I feel beneath my feet and all around me. And so gradually, almost not really consciously, I started shifting my prayers from this light in the sky to this earth, this living consciousness that feeds us, that is us, that courses to us. And I've had a few conversations with earth that have really stood out to me. Um, but one of them was very often me feeling separated from nature not separate in the same way that I feel separate from that light in the sky that impersonal somewhat disapproving glare it's not separate in that kind of way it's more of a let me in I want to understand your secrets and feeling the earth saying no and not understanding why like I want to be part of you I want to be part of nature I want to be part of the cycles I want to be part of this of this natural ebb and flow I want to be let in. I want to be. I want to rest in the arms of the earth, and feeling not it, not let in, not part of it. And I think that's largely why I'm making this drastic move, quitting my job, moving, volunteering, wanting to work on farms because I think I'm so inundated by the ways in which we've tamed and corrected and improved upon in air quotes and and directed nature that I think the reason why I'm finding it so hard to feel part of the living world of the natural world is because the natural world that I witness all around me is is really an expression of civilization 
rather than of wild, true, authentic earth. I drive into town, I drove into town today, and I looked around at all the oak trees, which are beautiful, but which were brought here from Europe and which were planted in neat little rows and pruned. And I'm not disregarding the the power and the beauty of those trees nonetheless, but I cannot find it within me to feel truly at home with these trimmed hedges all along the road, with these huge expanses of lawn everywhere, of little bits of nature peeking through the cracks. It's not enough. I'm hungry for more. I don't, in a, in a word, feel a sense of belonging to nature. And one day I was, I was, I was praying this. I was, I, I journaled and I said, Earth, let me in. Like, why can't I, why don't I feel part of this? Do I need to study more, learn more about plants perhaps so that I can truly respect them more? And the sense that I got, the answer that I got was, you're not ready yet. And I didn't know what that meant. I thought about it, of course, in my progress-minded, linear, human way of, ooh, I need to work harder and try more. And then I went through heartbreak. What's new? And this was last year, at some point last year, and I remember lying in bed, gasping with tears. And I was just, I was beside myself. I was absolutely wild with grief. I was rolling, crawling around gasping with tears, snot everywhere on my pillow, making sounds that were more animal than human and just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And then I felt the earth say to me, now, now you get to come in. And even then I didn't understand what that meant. I thought, oh, apparently I have to suffer to become part of nature to be led into the secrets of the living world but I don't think that was it at all it's I need to say yes to all the fullness of experience I need to be in the experience no longer in my mind but in my body because in that moment I was fully in my body and fully in my heart I was just surrendering to the agony of that heartache and then I felt the earth reach out and hold me I don't know how else to explain this. I just knew that I was being held in the arms of the mother. And that's what's been happening to me, for me again, in these past few weeks. I have been <laughs> crying and crying. And my ability to be with that has significantly expanded since last year. I started doing something that I suppose you might call breath work. <laughs> A friend of mine sent me a link to a breath work, a free breath work uh, workshop a few months ago. It was quite a few months ago by now. And so I attended this workshop online. Thank God it was online. Nobody could see me. And they said the main tenets of this breath work are breathe in and out through your mouth, make noises if you feel to, move as you feel to, and follow the emotions as they come up. And I did that, and within five minutes, maybe, I was groaning, like this deep groan that just wanted, that was just the sound that wanted to be expressed. And within five more minutes, I was wriggling around and shaking and moaning, and within 15 minutes, I was sobbing my eyes out. 
And I was like, this is powerful. This I don't know what this is. I don't think it's breath work because it's more moan work or vocalizing than it's breath work. But I want to do this again. And I started doing that. And every time it's different. And every time it's it unearths something. Some wild grief comes up. Some wild anger. And every time also I meet the scared child inside myself. Sometimes I involuntarily, as I'm doing this breathwork type thing a phrase comes up and the phrase that comes up the most often is I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I'm so sorry and I just repeat that while rocking back and forth another one that comes up a lot is I love you I love you I love you and I don't know to whom I'm addressing these sentences but I know that I keep encountering the child inside me who is terrified of being alone and of being wrong and every time I do this breath work another little piece of that child surfaces the said child who absolutely believes she's wrong I don't quite know how to explain it but it feels also as if I'm tapping into a very large lovingness a very large lovingness that is both inside me and outside me so even as I'm repeating this phrase I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry in response to that comes up this I love you I love you and it feels both as if I'm speaking to myself, from myself to myself, you know, from the mother inside me to the child inside me, but also as if I'm really reaching out to the earth herself, to the spirit of aliveness that is in everything. And if that rises up and confirms me and meets me, and I'm not sure how to phrase that in a way that is less vague, less, less woohoo, um, but that's, that's what's happening for me right now. And even today, at one point, I was feeling very low, very, very, in, I could, my stomach was aching with more than it has been, and my body was shaking, and I decided, okay, I'm just going to express, I'm just going to dance this off, breathe this off on music. And again, within 10 minutes, I was met with the child inside of me who believes that I am doing, I'm doing this all wrong. I shouldn't be feeling like this. I shouldn't be feeling this heartbroken over a relationship that is, that is living up to my relationship anarchy standards in the best imaginable way. I shouldn't be feeling this terrified of leaving when it's what I've wanted for so long. I shouldn't feel this lost and scared when I have been doing all the healing work for so long. And what came up was the child in me who always believed that she could fix the situation, that if only I can make myself smaller or find the right words to say or defuse the tension somehow, everything will be better. There was this, always this huge urge to get it right, that I am supposed to fix it. And if something isn't right, if something feels wrong in my body or in my surroundings, that's my fault. And I just keep running up against this child. Every time I go in, I do a moving meditation or a breathing meditation, or I simply collapse in my shower and start weeping, what comes up is this terrified child who thinks she's doing it wrong. And then every time what comes up as well is this mother inside of me, but also around me in the earth itself, coming up to hold that child not to fix it, not to make it better, just to hold this child as she weeps uncontrollably. And somehow it feels as if with this breathing that I've been doing, this weird breathwork thing, um, with these 
prayers I've been extending towards the earth, with this conversation I've been in, and just with the general practices I've been incorporating into my life, I have been unearthing this crisis. Which feels ironic because, you know, I do breath work to feel better and now I feel worse. I go for long walks and do yoga to feel better and now I feel worse. And all of these things I do, I have to say, not from a, not from a, ooh, if I do this, I will be a successful human, but just simply to cope, just to stay afloat. In the mornings, I journal a sentence or two. I just sit down and get quiet and then write the thing that comes up for me. And most of the time, it's something simple such as breathe or be still today, allow what is. And then that's my intention for the day. Anyways, it feels as if all of these practices, this writing down, this sort of, this increased amount of constant engagement with this, with what I'll call the mother, is has brought me to this point of crisis. And I just know that I need to be in it. And I fucking hate it. <laughs> a few years ago, I was on a very difficult psilocybin trip. I um, was alone in my bed, I think it was night, and the mushrooms were taking off and it was I was hyperventilating a bit and just feeling not good in my body and this woman came to me and I can't explain it and at that time I was completely uneducated about any uh, myths or goddess stories and it wasn't part of the popular conversation as much as it is now or at least not in the circles that I was moving in but this woman came to me and I kind of understood her to be a goddess and she was wearing red and she was powerful and I knew that she was two things a warrior and a mother and she held me but she didn't hold me in a love, in a loving, fluffy way. She held me in a fierce way. She held me in a take-no-prisoners kind of way. She grounded me and she said to me, breathe. And I breathed and she said, you can do this. And I did it. And she held me until the crisis passed and then she left. And I think the reason why I'm telling you this story is because it was so strange, so unusual for me at that point to have a woman appear to me and I even googled goddesses afterwards and tried figuring out what had just happened and why did I have this experience of being held by this mother figure and as I was preparing to record this episode I came upon a post by the Instagram profile Purity to Polyamory whom I follow and she wrote the following, which really resonated with me, and I think which summarizes where I'm at with this experience really well. So I'm going to quickly read that to you. Quote, I used to pray to a God I thought was a father. I used to beg him to see my pain. But what did I expect when every man I knew had failed to give me that? When I was a young child, hugging my teddy bear and crying because I didn't feel safe, to an adult holding my own hand late at night in bed to calm me from the fear, I've never known a man that's helped me feel safe. So I began to see the universe as a mother. 
She held me when I cried and dried my tears. Her capacity for empathy was so natural, it flowed like water. She whispered into me the reminder of my strength, and now when I pray, I simply speak to her. Remind me the power I've always held, awaken it from within me, because I need it now more than ever. End quote. And in these excruciatingly alone times, because this has been an excruciatingly lonely, isolating experience, I feel as if I can go to nobody, as if nothing even gives me joy. I listen to the closest thing that comes to giving me joy right now is Martha Beck and her partner Rowan Mangan's podcast, Bewildered, which is, I have to admit, making me laugh out loud. They are hilarious. Um, but it falls flat very quickly and then I'm just left with these long days that feel powerful, sure, truthful, sure, meaningful, sure, but not joyful. Like I am not feeling and finding the joy right now. And immediately as I say the sentence, I I start wanting to defend myself and say, but that's okay because soon I will find the joy and it's all all right and don't worry I'm not depressed and I honestly I don't think I am depressed it doesn't feel like depression but I realize how how much we moralize emotions like we think oh if you're not joyful then you know either go on medication or start thinking positive thoughts or start keeping a gratitude journal at least saying I'm not feeling the joy right now is a weird thing to say for people and I think it's a weird a difficult thing for listeners to be with and now I've lost my point completely (laughs) Um, what I was trying to say is I'm not feeling the joy right now but what I am feeling is the sense of being held and of going deeper and deeper into the arms of a nurturing presence and this is really exciting to me this is serving as an alternative to the God that I had for so long imagined as severe and disappointed and masculine And I don't want to sweep away all that is male or even all that is masculine. But perhaps for me, on this stage of my journey, being able to imagine a God who is not male is what I need. Perhaps that is what will bring me back to being at home with the male or with the masculine again, is embracing the feminine, which I have never really done, not within myself or within others. Is imagining a God who is a mother, who is source in a different way than up a light in the sky. So that's what's been happening for me. I've been cultivating a new relationship with the living, breathing everything and feeling myself becoming part of it as I am in these experiences, as I am on the shower floor, weeping as I'm dancing in my kitchen, or rather flailing in my kitchen, as I am here and here again and here again and here again, and as I say yes to it, that is that, and that is a, the heart's call for me right now, is saying yes to it. As I keep saying yes to it, to this aliveness, I just feel a deep sense of rightness. 
and it's weird because the rightness isn't it's not chasing away the anxiety or the grief or the anger or the confusion honestly like huge confusion and the fact that time is running out and I need to get things done and I can't get things done because my body is just in pain and also really tired and sad and I'm like ha ah, I don't know what to do so my task my one task for today was to record a podcast episode and it is now 10 to 10 at night so I did the one task and yet in all of this this deep sense of being led in being welcomed and in fact of always having been welcomed and the thing that was standing between me and this big welcome was myself and my own ideas of progress of moving forward of having to get it right of having to find some sort of healing that would make me a more successful person a better person a more functional person less of a burden to others less of a burden to myself I felt that being healed, becoming healed, was my duty to others, as if I couldn't possibly inflict this current version of myself on others. For a long time, that has been my motivation for going to therapy, for trying all of these alternative modalities. It's been, if I could only be more healed, if I could have fewer triggers, if I could have smaller, more rational responses to things, then... Maybe I wouldn't feel guilty to let people love me. And I've just realized, and I'm still realizing this and learning and relearning this, that that is not the point. And that is not even how this works. And that really what I want is to live, not to find healing, but to find aliveness. And to, if anything, increase my capacity to be with the aliveness that is always here. About a week ago, as I was wrestling with this, struggling with this, I went on Instagram, as one does, you know, because there's only so much weeping on the, on the bathroom floor that you can do before you start distracting yourself with Instagram. I went on Instagram and I saw this post by Sophie Strand, whose Instagram handle is Cosmogony who writes so beautifully and I wasn't really in the headspace to read much you know I just wanted little digestible tidbits to fall into my brain and this was a long piece but it grabbed me and I read it out loud and I burst into tears the next day I read it again and I want to read it to you today so what follows is this piece by Sophie Strand and it's quite long but I think it's very fucking powerful so I want to read the whole thing here it goes the body is a doorway and for survivors of early trauma and abuse that doorway is always open wide open hypersensitivity both cognitive and physical has been tied to early trauma and sexual abuse time and time again a 2019 study published in the Journal of Rheumatology showed that in a sample of 67,000 women, those with the highest incidence of childhood abuse were at a threefold greater risk of developing lupus than those who had not experienced abuse. Survivors are also at an increased risk for developing serious autoimmune illness, chemical sensitivity, and allergy disorders. The correlations between early abuse and illness, disability, and neurodivergence are too many to list. 
The takeaway would seem to be that childhood experiences of trauma registers not only emotionally, but physically. This was something I understood intimately as a child. I seemed to notice more. More bugs, more smells, more texture, more noise, more micro-expressions on adults' faces, more birdsong, more temperature fluctuations. I knew something terrible had happened to me and that I was quite good at keeping it hidden, but I didn't connect my radical hypersensitivity to the abuse. I just knew that, for better or for worse, I seemed to be highly attuned to my surroundings. Yes, I watched doors, constantly monitored adults around me, and scanned rooms for signs of danger. But I also was transfixed for hours by dirt spangled with mycelia, air scintillating with dust, slugs leaving behind starlight slick stories on the porch. I could read the breathing patterns of our cats and dogs, keyed into the smallest fluctuations in their well-being. Blue was more blue. I could feel a cat's purr in my belly. Frog song vibrated below my tongue. The blooming lilac was so bright a smell it almost made a sound, a song. Life was often agonizing. But much to my confusion, it also seemed more available to me than it did to others. Why was this? Sensory gating is the neurological process whereby we filter our redundant stimuli from our sensual experience to create a homogenized reality. The experience, while necessary to function, has been tightened by patriarchy and civilization. Research at MIT, especially the work of Michael Halassa, has shown that we receive an outrageous amount of sensory data. Yet we manage to hear our name in a crowded room and spot a friend's face in a sea of people. These stimuli don't show up more brightly. They show up because we learn to dampen and gate out the sensory information we deem to be redundant. As a child, we learn from our parents and our social environments what information is redundant. And as that sensory information gets classified as non-goal-oriented, we stop noticing it. Children see the world as magical not because they are naive, but because they are actually more neurologically open to it. They haven't been taught yet to gate out the aliveness of the more-than-human world. One strange aspect of abuse is that it opens those gates even wider, showing you that you are permeable. It also creates a need to remain hypervigilant. To shut down sensory stimuli would be to put yourself at risk. This is why so many survivors of childhood abuse experience a constant alertness to their surroundings. For so long, I have characterized this as a burden and a failure. And it is true that this constant state of awareness leaves your body exhausted and more likely to develop illness. But if I am tired of how my body and mind are affected by the abuse, I am even more tired of the paradigm that problematizes how I diverge from a normative body and normative nervous system. Yes, the abuse made me hypersensitive and probably led to my genetic illness manifesting so dramatically later on. But my hypersensitivity and awareness didn't discriminate between human and non-human stimuli, and this has been my saving grace. While I scanned a room for danger, I also let my eyes take in the gestalt of ecosystems. I noticed minute shifts in cloud formations. I could react to the silver flipping twist of leaves to predict the exact moment when a storm would hit. I could taste the milky rust flavor of my corazor systems below my feet as I walked through a forest. 
I was able to notice more, particularly the very small and the very unacknowledged. Molds, mushrooms, tadpoles, pond scum, voids of birdsong where the year before there had been a frenetic chorus. For a long time, aware that my illness is tied to trauma, I made myself available to every possible healing modality to try and integrate the violent memories. I just needed a little bit more EMDR, a little bit more somatic experiencing, a little bit more acupuncture and talk therapy to bring my nervous system back into the window of tolerance. It was my responsibility to heal this trauma so that my body could finally relax. It is important to note that Westernized somatics and psychotherapy have created a baseline of comfort and relaxation as the goal treatment is supposed to provide. The individual and the individual's commitment to healing are centered. But when trauma is a multi-causal event caused by a web of relations, caused by systems of oppression, how can the individual possibly untie all the tangles? And should that even be the working goal? Perhaps relaxation and comfort should not be the goal as we confront climate collapse. I'm not sure I believe in wellness anymore, or healing. I'm increasingly wary of how both terms have been weaponized by institutions of oppression that enacted the harm in the first place, seeding us with the belief that we are ultimately individually responsible for how harm appears in our bodies. This phenomenon is known as healthism and is defined as the preoccupation with personal health and personal responsibility for health as primary, often to the detriment of understanding that the health of one person is intimately tied to and representative of a whole population. Trauma does not belong to an individual, it is a web that includes someone. It is not an object that can be removed. Your body's innate ability to dance with harm and with discomfort is not always a problem. It is a relational tactic, an unconsensual opening to both the good and the bad, the human and the non-human. As I release the need to perform completion or healing, I am more drawn to the idea of alchemical storytelling. If you have a genetic illness with no cure, a divergent nervous system, a wounded heart, if you can't undo what happened, how can you recontextualize trauma? How can you tell a new story about it? What if the abused body didn't passive-aggressively keep the score? What if it acted more like an aperture, capturing pictures of horror as well as also imprinting cosmic light from distant galaxies? What if the body was a doorway open to more than human stories? Just as I realized my connective tissue disease mapped directly onto my love of underground fungal connective system, so could I understand my trauma to be less of a mortal wound and more as a compass pointing out of anthropocentrism. What if the shape of your wounding, the exact flickering silhouette of your hypersensitivity, was the shape of the doorway into another being's pain and experience? I am allergic to spiritual practitioners who suggest my trauma was an initiation, but I am equally unimpressed by the prognosis of Western psychology and colonial somatics that I must dole out hundreds of dollars and years of time to manage and integrate and fix these problems. I have earnestly tried to integrate the trauma. I have spent thousands of dollars trying to come back into a normative nervous system and I'm done. If I can't fix this, then let me understand how it could be my superpower. If I can't close my sensory gating, then open me wider. 
Dilate me like a cervix so that I may be the birth canal for stories that are not about human beings and human progress. Let me become a doorway for viruses and ecosystems and fungi and dove song. Let me become a doorway so big and so open that a new way of being can emerge, one not tied to the fiction of human individuals, one that is equally aware of the agony and ecstasy and is allowed to wildly swing out of the window of tolerance, achieving both the valleys and peaks that our culture has denied us. Let me exceed the graph. Let me swing past wellness into something wilder and less predictable. We could say the climate itself is out of its window of tolerance. How then can I ride these nervous system oscillations in wild solidarity? How does the body of an abused survivor act as an expert barometer for shifting ecosystems and temperatures and weather patterns? It is important to note that the temperate conditions human beings consider optimal are an actual rarity in the history of deep time. What if the window of normalcy that trauma survivors are expected to re-enter isn't normalcy at all? What if it's just an anthropocentric model that gates out the wily and often ecstatic experience of being ecologically alive and aware? I am tired of the word survivor and the personal responsibility of coming back into cultural legibility. I want a better word and a better story. What if those who survived trauma and early abuse could call themselves doorways, too big and too wide for binaries of good and bad? What if we could honor that our nervous systems and our bodies are openings to stories that are vital right now as we confront cultural chaos, mass extinction, and climate collapse? End quote. What I love about this piece, and there are many things I love about it, but... What I love about it is that it neither subscribes to this progress-minded, linear story of we should each individually heal from our trauma, nor does it subscribe to the, the spiritual bypassing that I often hear in, in many of my circles that say, well, your trauma shaped you into a better person or your trauma, as Sophie Strand also wrote, was an initiation because I don't think that it's either of those things. Suffering isn't noble, nor is attaining a specific point of wholeness noble. It just is. This stomach ache, I feel in this moment, these shoulder stiffness I feel in this moment, it just is. It is neither good nor bad, it just is. I don't need to fix it. I can just be with it. And perhaps if I am with it, I can expand my ability to be with it. And as I expand my ability to be with the pain inside my body, I can expand my ability to be with the pain outside my body. And there is so much of it on this earth so much of it in human stories and in non-human stories and I cannot fix it I cannot fix myself nor can I fix anyone else but I can witness it and I can feel it and I can weep over it and rejoice over it and be with it so this is the prayer if I can call it a prayer that keeps coming up for me as I'm going through this slow, strange, fertile darkness 
Yes. Yes. I want to be with this. If I'm going to expand anything, let me expand my ability to be alive to all of it. <laughs>